and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Assault and Battery, part one from Warrior on the Edge of Time by Hawkwind. I've got the huge privilege to welcome Joe Banks today, who's wrote a wonderful book, Hawkwind Days of the Underground, which is one of the top 10 music books of 2020 by all the music publications you would know and love. Welcome, Joe. Hi there, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And, um, this show is is uh, a little bit different because what we've got is not only we're we playing some Hawkwind material, we're also including some clips from some of the interviews you've undertaken to, to compile the Hawkwind journey through the 70s. From reading about you, it, it sounds like Warrior on the Edge of Time was a the first Hawkwind album that you listened to. That's right, yeah. That's why I chose that track to, to intro the show because... That would have been literally the first piece of Hawkwind music I, I heard. And, and, and you know, the, that amazing kind of start with the Mellotron and then Lemmy's bass line and then the kind of drums and then the riff comes in. I was lucky enough to have an older brother who had a lot of kind of albums that he would play. Uh, a lot of this was, you know, your classic rock stuff like Pink Floyd and Queen and Deep Purple. But he had this one album by Hawkwind, Warren in the Edge of Time, which even, and I was probably hearing this when I was nine or ten, and even at that age I could tell that this was something quite different from those other bands. And also Warren Edge of Time has this amazing fold-out sleeve, um, you know, it kind of, there's a shield of chaos on one side and then literally a warrior on the edge of time on the other. And it was, it just felt like a, a, a real special kind of artefact which complemented the music. And not only do you have the amazing... Uh, kind of music but also there's these kind of weird spoken word uh, interludes on the album as well so again that was really emphasizing that here was a band that were clearly uh, different from the norm it seems that Hawkwind are very much right for reappraisal and and have been been increasing in terms of critical acclaim over the last decade but you, you focused on the 1970s which um was a very shifting period, especially setting Hawkwind against the, the cultural context that they, they were in as well? That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I kind of didn't really seriously get into Hawkwind, you know, because of my age until the early 80s. But I, I think that most people would agree that their classic period is during the 1970s. And that's not just because of the music. Um, it's also, as you say, because of the cultural context they were operating in. I mean, I think I find a lot of the music from the 1970s, that period, particularly interesting just because of the of what was happening in the world at the time. Um, you know, Britain, you know, kind of classically was in a, in a period of political flux and the world also, you know, was kind of facing, seemed to be one crisis after another. Um, it, it feels a little bit like today, I have to say, but the 1970s were, was, I think at some point in the book, I say where, where the modern age kind of really begins and Hawkwind's kind of interaction with that, I think is kind of fascinating because for a lot of people, they think, well, what on earth is a band who just kind of sings about, you know, science fiction got to do with that? But actually, if you look at the way that they use science fiction as a vehicle for satire and, and social comments and just really channeling the whole, slightly apocalyptic vibe of the time you know i i would say that you know they they have a great great relevance to that period and uh, and yes yeah, so that was why i kind of really wanted to focus on that period in the book because um i wanted to, to talk about the 1970s as well as talking about hawkwind we'll be featuring a clip from nick turner about the the early period of of hawkwind and 
how he come to join the group and then uh, linking into the track from their debut album, the track being Seeing It As You Really Are. Do you want to kind of describe that early formative period for Hawkwind? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so Hawkwind themselves, uh, so so the, the main guy in Hawkwind and still the main guy is Dave Brock. And he started off, um, well, he was a busker uh, on, on the kind of, on the streets of London, literally uh, in the in the late sixties, he'd already also been in a variety of kind of jazz and blues bands at that point. And I think it's nineteen sixty seven. He's in a band called The Famous Cure, uh, and they do a tour of of the Netherlands. And at this point, he bumps into Nick Turner, who has who's basically kind of working his way around Europe. And um, when um, Brock comes back to London and s- decides he's going to form this uh, new band. Um, he hooks up with Nick Turner again in 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 uh, Notting Hill. And uh, Nick Turner at the time is is basically like a, a a van driver for a lot of the head shops and and some of the bands shifting equipment. And initially he's going to be their road manager, but when they discover that he has this kind of fairly rudimentary uh, talent on saxophone, he gets invited to to join the band. And this clip is interesting because Nick's talking about. When he was in Europe, uh, he spent quite a bit of time in Berlin um, in the late 60s, hanging out with people like Edgar Froza from Tangerine Dream and going to all of the the jazz clubs there. And, and he gets this kind of idea about integrating free jazz in a, in a, in a kind of rock context. Uh, and that's how he, he saw Hawkwind. Free jazz in a rock and roll band. <laughs> and that's what it was to me, you know. And that's how I saw Hawkwind initially mm. when I... When I started playing with them, I was just sort of having a good time um, expressing myself. Because I was playing an E-flat instrument, they um, they tuned their guitars down to E-flat out for me. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to play in, on my instrument in the key of C, so I could just play anything. And I think that they liked it. They realized that, um, that I was a just free-thinking musician that... Um, was happy to play anything. I'd play anything they told me to play, mm-hmm. as well as I'd play anything I felt like playing. Mm-hmm. And it all seemed to gel together, really, into some sort of bizarre sort of noise and sort of self-expressionistic, sort of wacky sort of sound. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that, you know, everybody loved it. It was just like something so new. Nobody else was doing anything like that. You know, guys at the Arts Lab in London used to come to the gigs and they'd make me pedals. They'd make me all these boxes, these ring modulators and, and all sorts of stuff that it made, you know, distorted the sound I was playing. Mm-hmm. I got, a, I got a sort of a microphone on my saxophone and put it through all these boxes and, and played all this distortion and played, you know, all really, really convoluted music. <laughs>
in the book, you vividly describe the events around Hawkins' first gig and incredibly that John Peel was there. And there's a bit of sort of discussion on what actually happened and the circumstances surrounding that first gig as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these things that uh, it, on the face of it looks like an incredible stroke of luck, you know, this kind of bunch of stoners who happen to be, you know, kind of rehearsing. They find out that there's this gig happening at the All Saints Hall, which was this kind of quite famous venue in, in, in Notting Hill at the time. And, you know, they basically say, oh, guys, you know, let's go along and, and, and kind of see if they'll let us play at this gig. Now, that's the kind of myth. Uh, various people will tell you that this was actually had already been prearranged, blah, blah, blah. And also that actually they had played a couple of gigs beforehand. But I quite like this as a, as a creation story for Hawkwind because it, it literally is where everything happens. You know, they, they, they arrive at the venue. They persuade the people who are putting the gig on clear water promotions to, uh, let them kind of play for 10 or 15 minutes at the start. And they don't even have all of their equipment. I think they end up borrowing drum kits and, and, and they end up breaking the drum kit. And, mm. but anyway, yeah. So they, they, they do this, what I've just dis- described as 15 minutes of kind of barbarian psychedelia, you know, fairly unstructured, you know, kind of just one long piece, you know, and this is ni- August 1969. So, you know, the, the, the psychedelic period is kind of coming to an end, but it, there's, there's still a lot of underground sounds, obviously a lot of kind of strange sounds happening out there, but. For some reason, Hawkwind seemed to be producing a noise that is different from everybody else. And as you say, John Peel just happens to be at this gig. Uh, and at the end of the gig, when he leaves, he tells the promoters, you know, this is an interesting band. You should think about getting involved with them. And from that point, that's where they get their management with Clearwater and specifically a guy called Doug Smith. And um, yeah, it, it kind of takes off from there. Yeah, so Nick is going to talk about you know, kind of the circumstances around that. And then we'll be featuring Be Yourself, also from their debut LP. Mick Slattery said, oh, there's this gig going on down at the All Saints Hall in Notting Hill Gate. Do you think we should go and play there? And we all said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're all totally stoned and ready ready to rock. And so we all climbed in my van with uh, with, with what little equipment we had and got to the gig and um, spoke to one of the organisers. It was Clearwater, uh, mm-hmm. Clearwater Productions, which was Doug Smith, um, Richard uh, Thomas, uh, Max Money, and Wayne Bardell. Um, and we asked, I think we asked Doug Smith, and and he said, well, okay, yeah, 10 minutes. And John Peel was there, and he was very excited about it. So we just set up our equipment and played this... Um, it's like a John, John Coltrane riff, really. It was like the riff that, um, there's this sort of story that the birds were rehearsing in the desert and the only, the only, uh, cassette they had was this John Coltrane cassette of Africa and India, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But the riff that we had was, down, 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 which is what the birds use because they can be, I'm going to release that. <laughs> so it's very loosely based upon that, uh-huh. on that riff. And we played that for 10 minutes. And then, uh, then we got, then we, then we left the stage. Everybody loved it. 
Um, John Peel thought it was marvellous. <laughs> he told the he told the organisers that they ought to manage us, and um, and so they did. Got us a record deal with Andrew Lauder from um, United Artists Records, mm-hmm. and for one record, and the rest is history, I guess.
Next, we have some incredible stories around the Isle of Wight Festival and how they didn't really seek permission in terms of getting on bills or anything like that. They were they just sort of turn up and, and just play where they wanted. I mean, the Isle of Wight Festival, I think, is... I mean, this is this is coming after Woodstock, and this is like this, you know, depending on who you speak to, you, there's, there's nearly half a million people at this thing. Um, and it's so the Britain's kind of first major outdoor festival and it's where you know one of the things I talk about in the book is the idea of the underground forming I and mean, I think for a lot of people you know they think of the counterculture and the underground and they associate it with kind of late 60s London a very metropolitan scene but I think my argument is that uh, actually the days of the underground as it were are, are, are very much the 1970s when the whole countercultural idea and ideal if you like spreads out across the country and the Isle of Wight Festival is is very much an important kind of marker event in in, in this kind of spread. So, but what happens is, um, you know, you, you've got obviously loads of big names kind of playing there. I think the, the, the Doors and Jimi Hendrix and all kinds of people. Um, but Hawkwind turn up and basically play outside of the of the fence. <laughs> There's this whole kind of standoff during the course of the festival between. Um, you know, the people who have paid to go inside, of which I think there's, I don't know, something like 60,000 tickets. And then you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people who've turned up and basically camp out on the hillside overlooking the festival and, and, and pretty much, you know, getting a half decent view and actually being able to hear as well. But there's, there's various people kind of saying, hey, man, you know, the festival should be free, bring down the fences. And Hawkwind are, are kind of playing just outside of the fence pretty much non-stop for five <laughs> days as far as they can make out, along with uh, the Pink Fairies, who are, yeah. who are another kind of important Labrook Grove band. I mean, together, at first they're playing outside, then they play, as I think we're about to hear, uh, in this inflatable dome, which is, is known as, as Canvas City. Um, so the person who you're going to hear next is Paul Rudolph, who at the time was a member of the Pink Fairies, uh, but did later on in the decade go on and to, to join Hawkwind and become a member. And so Paul's going to talk about his recollections and, 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 and it sounds very much that he's, he's, he's very much reliving it in his head. I uh, think you can hear when, when you hear him speak. After Paul, we will hear, you shouldn't do that from In Search of Space. And it, it feels to me that on that second album, they really find themselves and, and their sound really sort of coalesce then. Yeah, um, I mean, the first album is is a, is a kind of slightly curious combination of kind of folk blues and, as I said, it's kind of Barbarian psychedelia. But really, it's only on the second album when they, they start producing what's kind of identifiably the Hawkwind sound, you know, um, this kind of almost British version of kraut rock, very rhythmic, uh, very, very kind of simple, metronomic, hypnotic and trance-like and uh, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Is 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 absolutely the epitome of that kind of sound. What I remember the most about it was playing outside, and then somebody had this inflatable dome outside mm-hmm. that said, "How would you guys like to play in here?" And you know, there were thousands of people out there who couldn't get into the festival, so uh, you know, they said, uh, "You know, we'd like to charge people a loony or something like that." I remember that we came to some agreement that as long as we could get money for petrol to get back to London, that was good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the inflatable dome filled with people. I think probably everybody in there was stoned on acid. 
the generator died and the roof started falling down. And over about a half an hour, it got closer and closer and closer to the people in the dome till we all had to evacuate. <laughs> uh, so that was one of my my favorite memories. But that's uh, there was a lot of pink wind going on at the at that festival.
So after the Isle of Wight, we've got another outsider story, really, where the band are giving LSD to fans. <laughs> yeah, so this was something that Nick talked to me about when I when I interviewed him, because uh, I obviously, you know, when when people think of Hawkwind, uh, they, they they do tend to kind of associate them with with kind of drugs and taking drugs and and all the rest of it. Uh, Again, this is, I think, an interesting point about the spread of the underground in Britain, the way that recreational drugs, whether it be cannabis or even LSD, was starting to spread out from London at this time. And as it turned out, uh, you know, Hawkwinds were were one, you know, in their own small way, were were kind of responsible for for spreading acid out among the provinces, um, as, uh, as Nick is about to describe in this clip. And we'll also be playing You Know, You're Only Dreaming. From in search of space, was that got that LSD tie? I kind of, I think it's it's just one of those kind of lyrics that that really sounds like uh, it could be about tripping, it could be about anything. So I thought it was kind of relevant. Yeah. <laughs> we did gigs in London, and I had all these friends that that were LSD dealers. They had their own factory, and um, then they'd come to the gigs and give me all these bottles of LSD. And I thought, good God, what am I supposed to do with this? And uh, so I thought, well, I'll take it to the gigs and give it away to the fans, <laughs> which, which is what I did, you know. And I think it, I think it really compounded the band's popularity because, I mean, people come to me now saying, wow, that gig you did in 1971, it changed my life. <laughs> so, well, geez, yeah, well, it probably was, yeah, but thank you. <laughs> I, I said, I'm sorry, I hope it didn't, didn't sort of... Uh, make you unhappy no they said no it's fantastic thank you very much yeah. <laughs> so it had a resounding effect really you know I'm, i can imagine we went out into these into the provinces doing gigs in somewhere in the middle of nowhere and um giving away all this lsd and i think it really did change people's lives
there seem to be quite a lot of lineup changes, you know, especially when we get into that that third do re mi fa so bloody do. We'll be featuring brainstorm, but um, Lemmy was coming in, and I think there was Simon King also there as well. That's right. So I think for many people, by the third album, you've got what people regard as the classic Hawkwind lineup. They are they are kind of notorious for for changing, um, particularly bass players in their early days. I think they go for three or four bass players until they, they, they kind of get Lemmy. And Lemmy, of course, makes an enormous impact on their sound with his playing, but also with his with his personality. And, um, you know, before the release of Doromai or Doremi, Hawkwind released Silver Machine as a single, which kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, at first, sells a lot because they've become literally the biggest band in the underground. But then people like... Jimmy Young and Tony Blackburn start playing and it becomes this huge, huge kind of like track. So certainly by the point of the third album, they are a seriously big band. I mean, they're on the verge of being a mainstream rock act. I mean, they're playing to thousands and thousands of people every night. But they still kind of, uh, as I think Nick is going to talk about, they, they, they still have this kind of sense of kind of mission of doing something different that they're, they're not interested in just kind of fitting in with the with the, the rock mainstream they're still committed to, to to producing this new type of music as they see it do you think nick was growing in confidence in this period because i think brainstorm was his first composition that he wholly did that's right yeah um i think so i mean through 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 those first three albums he I mean, and on stage as well, he becomes the front man, if you like. I mean, at first, they're very much all about the light show. And and as musicians, they kind of step back. But Nick increasingly comes from quite a theatrical background. And I I think he puts himself forward. And as you say, Brainstorm is his first kind of um, composition that he he does on his own. And it is the simplest, simplest of songs, um, but enormously effective. And, And I think, as you'll be able to hear, quite an influence on on a lot of the punks as well and we were just willing to do anything you know just to have fun and be creative and and create different sounds and different um something that had never been done before really and i think that's what we did you know there were all these these other gans other bands around doing stuff like can mm-hmm. and um these are german crowd rock bands mm-hmm. but we were doing something completely different you know pioneers of uh of this sort of new music that we were producing, and it wasn't prog rock. I felt that prog, prog rock was people trying to pose as classical musicians, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to um, impress each other with their technical ability, trying to be clever, really. Mm-hmm. Well, it was very clever, and I, you know, take my hat off to them because they were very good. Mm-hmm. But, but we were just doing something different, you know, and I think that, um, you know, we tried to do something different, really, I think, consciously, we were trying to, um, we were trying to rail against all that sort of conventional sort of music.
you describe how the the funds or the money from Silver Machine were were put back into the the Space Ritual live show or tour? Yeah, the the tour. Um, so this is something that they've been talking about for quite a long time um, about putting on this kind of kind of science fiction rock show multimedia extravaganza and. The success of Silver Machine, um, you know, obviously produces quite a bit of money, but you know, kind of fair deal to them. They don't, they don't just kind of go off and each buy a Rolls Royce. They they plow it back into uh, into the show, um, and and it really is something that probably hasn't, you know, hadn't been seen at all at this point, in, in certainly in this country, uh, in its combination of kind of music and lighting and dancers and spoken word. Um, you know, it really is quite an incredible show. So I think the next clip that we're going to hear is by uh, Adrian Shaw, who at the time was playing in a band called Magic Muscle, who were the uh, support group on the Space Ritual tour. Uh, he l- later also went on to to join Hawkwind in in the later seventies. But here he is just describing you know his impressions of the Space Ritual. And then we hear Born to Go, which is from Space Ritual and a candidate for one of the best live albums ever, I guess. Uh, I mean, if you're talking to me, it is the best live <laughs> album ever, but certainly it should never be off any of those top ten lists. I thought they were great. You know, it's uh, anarchic. It's just an a audio onslaught, really. Mm-hmm. Not a huge amount of subtlety at the time, but a wonderful spectacle, terrific light show by uh, John Smeaton, Liquid mm-hmm. Lynn. Of course, Ed Stacia with them as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was quite spectacular. You know, they were just great fun. It was, yeah, a lot of them at the time, all absolute hardcore freaks. And, uh, yeah, I mean, as I say, the music wasn't particularly subtle, Mm -hmm. but it was certainly impressive. Okay. Slammed in, you could not kind of take your eyes or ears off them.
now we have one of the most evocative Hawkwind tracks, Sonic Attack. It crosses that sort of sci-fi and public information film approach, really. And I guess it's a nuclear age as well when, you know, you could have impending Armageddon at any time as well. So it kind of links into that as well. Yeah, I mean, this really does capture what I was talking about earlier, the way that Hawkwind kind of channel this slightly apocalyptic vibe of the early 70s. Sonic Attack is written by Michael Moorcock, who... Um, was a very important science fiction author, happened to kind of live around the corner from when Hawkwind were in Labrock Grove. And he is, as as well as, you know, kind of writing a huge amount of books, uh, is the editor of New Worlds magazine, which basically is is, is the kind of house journal of the uh, the science fiction new wave, people like J.G. Ballard. And so it, it, it does show that Hawkwind were kind of plugged into you know, not just the, you know, kind of robots and alien side of science fiction, but very much this new, darker strain of science fiction. I mean, this is one of the things as well that really attracted to me Hawk, to, to Hawkwind when I was young, the fact that they would have these kind of strange spoken word interludes, mm. you know, that, that really counterpointed the, the kind of brain-blasting kind of music. And it, it just kind of made it feel that there was something else going on here than, as I say, your standard rock band. So, yes, but Sonic Attack is is probably the epitome of their spoken word, period. Sonic Attack was a government health warning that Michael Moorcock had con- concocted, and which we did, and it was like, well, you know, it's the dark side of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so we were quite happy to, um, to sort of uh, represent that as well. You know, we weren't trying to make people ill with it, we were just trying to bring people's attention to the fact that um, the government was in control and that they were issuing all these health warnings which were completely stupid, you know, in the event of a, of, a, of a nuclear attack, you know. Sure. Get under the table yeah. and paint your windows white. <laughs> you know, that's crazy. That's what the government recommended. I've got, I've got all these, these recommendations to that effect from a friend of mine who was a fireman. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, this is what they're giving out.
Do not attempt to rescue friends, relatives, loved ones. You have only a few seconds to escape. Use those seconds sensibly or you will inevitably die. Do not panic. Think only of yourself. Think only of yourself. These are the first signs of sonic attack. You will notice small objects such as ornaments oscillated. You will notice vibrations in your diaphragm. You will hear a distant hissing in your ears. You will feel dizzy. You will feel the need to vomit. There will be bleeding from orifices. There will be an ache in the pelvic region. You may be subject to fits of hysterical shouting or even laughter. These are all signs of imminent sonic destruction. Your only protection is flight. If you are less than 10 years old, remain in the shelters and use your cocoon. Remember, you can help no one else. No one else. You can help no one else. No one else. Do not panic. Do not panic. Do not panic. Think only of yourself. Think only of yourself. Think only of yourself. And as we move on into the 70s and the next track will be, you'd better believe it, from Hall of the Mountain Grill. There's a great clip from Alan Powell where he's describing the the lack of rehearsals for, for the group. This is this is fantastic. I, I love speaking to, to Alan Powell. I mean, he was only in the group for a couple of years, but his, his anecdotes in particular were fabulous. Um, so he had basically joined the group I think it's in June 1974 when Simon King, their, their, their drummer, um, injures himself playing football and is not able to go on, on a tour. And so Alan Powell, who is this proper drummer, he's been a session drummer since the age of 16. So he's like a proper musician. He's been all over the world already. And Simon, who, who literally lives, I think, in the floor above him in the apartment where they are, says, can you fill in for me? And Alan says, yeah, OK. Um, but as you'll hear in this clip, I mean, he didn't didn't really know who Hawkwind were. He'd been over in America when things like Silver Machine were happening. Um, but as he says, you, you, you kind of never turn down a gig. You say, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll turn up. When do you want me? But is is slightly surprised by uh, by Hawkwind's uh, whole attitude towards uh, rehearsal and playing live. It was absolutely like nothing I'd ever played with or heard in my entire life. <laughs> I, I mean, for a start, there was no rehearsal. Right. I mean, I just met, I went over to the manager's, Doug Smith, the manager's flat, and Dave Brock was staying there, and I, I, I went over there in a camp before we drove out to, you know, the flat in Norway, and uh, I said to Dave, so you want to run through a couple of tunes with this, so I know what we're doing here, you know, and I'll just tack it out on the, on the soul with a pair of stitches. No, nah, it's all right, he said, we're not musicians, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, you know. So we get to the gig. In, in Norway, and I'm saying up there, and I'm just saying to Kurt, I said, okay, you want to run through some stuff so I'll know what, you know, nah, nah, you don't worry about it, you know, you, you, you'll, you'll figure it out, we're just a jam band. <laughs> Nobody seemed to care. <laughs> so that was it, so when, so that when we go on, this, 
So when we go on that night, I'm standing next to Lemmy, and Lemmy looks at me and goes, one, two, three, four, we start playing. I had no idea what the songs were like. Mm. I didn't know if they were going to... For all I know, they could have started playing regimental marching bands. <laughs> so, you know, by that time, I, I was very good at, like, watching the guitarist or the bass player or the keyboard player for the old nod and the wink. Like, we were about to stop, so somebody would look at you, and that means stop playing. <laughs> oh, my God. So they'd turn around and, like, wave the hand around, you know, faster, faster. Or, <laughs> so, yeah. It was all like, it was, and that's how it was. And at the end of the night, I came off and thought, wow, I've never heard anything like that in my life. <laughs> and then, not, to, not, not even to mention the fact that Stacey was dancing around me completely nude. You know, and, and I came off and thought, okay. That is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most unusual experience I've ever had in my musical career. <laughs> it sounded horrible, but who cares? <laughs> they don't care, so why should I? <laughs>
And next we have Spiral Galaxy from Warrior on the Edge of Time. But this was a period where I think Lemmy was getting disillusioned with the music of the group and just disillusioned generally in terms of Hawkwind. Um, I don't know if it's true to say he was getting disillusioned. I think kind of the right. rest of the group were, were getting <laughs> slightly <laughs> disillusioned with him. Right, but, I mean, okay. I think he, he, he has kind of actually, you know, said, or he said a, n- a number of times that if he hadn't have been kicked out of Hawkwind, he would have happily stayed with them and there would have been no Motorhead and there would have been no kind of Lemmy really as as we know it. But I think on War on the Edge of Time, um, he's he feels slightly less present in the mix um, than on other albums, and so so yeah. So it, this is the the last album that he appears on, and uh, and I think as Alan's about to talk about, um, they do an American tour in May nineteen seventy five, and trying to cross the Canadian border. Uh, they've obviously become quite good at making sure there's no kind of drugs or anything on the tour bus. Um, but uh, unfortunately, Lemmy has something in his pocket. He gets caught out. He gets arrested by the police and carted off to jail. And um, for um, many of the band, this is this is the kind of straw, uh, the final straw for them. I think I have a feeling that Lemmy somehow got it in his head that the reason he got fired was because of Simon King and me. We, we were instrumental in him being fired. We weren't, you know, had nothing to do with the nothing to do with that at all. Because I, I read later, that I read somewhere that he, you know, he started calling us the drum empire. The drum empire, yeah. Why that was, I don't know. I just think maybe either he thought we were somehow instrumental in him getting fired from the band, and that wasn't it at all. It was it all that all happened in a hotel room in Detroit. I was kind of surprised because I mean I didn't expect that. You know, he was one of like the most ident- he was one of the identifiable members of the band. I mean, uh, Nick Turner were the two guys that you thought of when you thought of Hawkwind, really. I was a, a little surprised. I just, I think that, uh, and of course, I hadn't been in the band long enough to have any kind of say. I couldn't stand up and say, I'm not standing for this or yeah. whatever. You know, I, had, I just kind of went along with the, with the boat. But uh, it, yeah, I was, it was surprising. Uh, you know, it's unusual when that kind of thing happens. I just think that the rest of the band at that point had got, but had enough of the uh, Lemmy's being unreliable, missing. Because if you had a rehearsal, for instance, and the rehearsal was starting at three o'clock, and you'd get there at seven, if he got there.
and a shift in sound as uh, as we get to astounding sounds amazing music and with paul rudolph joining on on bass with a, a bit more of a a cleaner sound and, and Robert Calvert coming to the fore and coming back into the fold this time. Time We've got City of Lagoons here, but um, even though the sound shifts, you've got a great clip from Alan describing the the lack of production, shall we say. Yeah, um, I mean, that was one of the things he was surprised by when he actually then started recording with them because when Simon King comes back to, to fitness, rather than kind of saying, all right, Alan, thanks very much, off you go, they decide that they're going to have this double drummer Lineup, so he he records uh, Warrior with them, um, but is is kind of amazed by the way that they go about it, and he contrasts that with them when they do astounding sounds, where as you say, people like Paul Rudolph have joined the band, and there's there's a slight feeling that um, they need to get a little bit more professional, and so uh, the album is recorded uh, Roundhouse Studios uh, in a much more professional way. And as you say, the sound is is very, very much changing on Astounding Sounds. Um, not only is it cleaner, but it's it's kind of less all about this kind of heavy space rock. And there's a lot more space in there rather than just space rock. And um, and sounds in places quite a lot like Pink Floyd, which uh, we'll talk about in a little while. We will. For me, what went in the studio was... I mean, it was just appalling. I mean, the, the, the quality of the, of the sound and the production was at best amateurish. As, you know, I, I mean, if I listen to Warrior on the Edge of Time now, it sounds like it was recorded on a, a Sony cassette player. You know, <laughs> that you just, it, it's that bad. I mean, it, it's just terrible. Uh, the band would go in the studio and just set up microphones and then start playing. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's not how you get a really good quality recording. So, but with astounding sound, it, it was recorded at the, you know, to proper recording standards. So, so it, it was a completely different sound. And I don't think some of the members of the band like. I don't think Dave liked it. I think he preferred it, you know, messy and ragged and that kind of stuff. So that did cause a problem there. Yeah.
One of the interesting things reading reading the book is that when you look on the internet about that album, Astounding Sounds, and the track Curb Crawler, all you see is Dave Gilmore as, uh, doing a, a remix for that track. But Paul Rudolph describes actually that Dave's role, certainly initially, was much greater. Yeah, this was one of the kind of real revelations for me when I was speaking to uh to, to the various kind of crew. I mean, when you when you do these type of interviews with bands that have been around for 40, 50 years, you, know, you, you tend to kind of think that you're just going to hear the same stuff and it's it's difficult kind of finding out anything new. But this one really did hit me upside the head when Paul, as you're about to hear, says that Dave Gilmore had a much, much bigger role in the production of Astounding Sounds. Sorry, you say at those initial sessions that, that, that Dave Gilmore was, was, was present. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because he was producing Astounding Sounds. I, I, well, he's down as remixing the single Cur- Curb Crawler, but he's he's not down as actually producing the album, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, well, he did. <laughs> oh, okay. He was there. I think, I think that uh, some of the loops and things and different ideas that were that were happening were uh, validated by him saying so and his presence there. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, Dave had a certain amount of respect for Dave, Dave's tenure and uh, Pink Floyd and said, oh, well, okay, everybody can, you know, have a, a track on the album, do you do what you want type of thing. Some of the standing sounds quite, sounds quite like Pink Floyd in places. on it, you know, even though some of it may just have been his presence there behind the the mixing board. Stand 
So as we move forward, I think to 1977, which is kind of the last era covered in the book, we get to Spirit of the Age on Quark, Strangeness and Charm. We have Adrian describing the infamous incident with uh, Robert Calvert and how um, he departed the band, which wasn't ideal, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, so um, Robert Calvert, who we haven't really talked about, um, you know, is a absolutely key figure for Hawkwind throughout the 1970s. He's the kind of intellectual heart, if you like, uh, an incredible performer, an incredible lyricist as well. And 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 uh, he had been the person performing Sonic Attack, who we heard earlier. But he left the band for a couple of years to do some solo albums and then had rejoined at the start of the Standing Sounds. And then by Quark Strangers and Charm, he had really kind of taken control of the, of the whole band, you know, conceptually. And it really is kind of this amazing science fiction influenced album but the problem with Robert Calvert had was that he was unfortunately also a manic depressive virgin perhaps on on kind of by by being bipolar nobody really knows and so he would sometimes go through these uh, uh, tremendous manic phases where he'd be quite difficult to be around and certainly when you're on tour you know kind of when you've got this kind of person going who's not sleeping who's kind of knocking on your door in the middle Mm. of the night kind of to tell you the latest crazy idea he's had and uh and anyway so yeah so this was a tour um in france towards the end of 1977 when um calvert had really started going off the deep end um they did a gig in paris where he became convinced that all of the the members uh, of the audience were in fact the heads of all of the world's terrorist organizations and they had come to see Hawkwind play and after, after afterwards, he was trying to get them all backstage, and he was wanted to talk to them about how, with his help, they could change the world. And and obviously, everybody was trying to say, "No, Bob, they're, they're just they're just kind of French guys, uh, French guys in the audience." And so anyway, so I think he ends up attacking Jeff Dexter, who was their tour manager at the time. And then the next wow. day, you know, they have this band meeting and, and decide that this really can't go on. There was band meeting when Bob wasn't there, and they said. We can't do this, you know. I think we ought to go home. And was, was that like first thing in the morning? Or, yeah. yeah. And uh, so the plan was we'd meet up at whatever time it was, 10 in the morning, uh, so be downstairs and we're going, you know, straight back to the airport or the ferry or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, okay, we went off packed. No one argued, you know. Uh, the idea was just to leave Bob with Jeff Dexter. Jeff would get him home. And uh, no one argued. And we met up in the lobby. And at Sod's Law, at that moment, Bob walked into the lobby. <laughs> and he went, uh, oh, oh, are we going? And everyone said, yeah. He said, well, hold on, I'll just go and get my bag. And then we skedaddled and got in the car. <laughs> and drove off and just as he appeared with his bag in his hand oh god and yeah obviously as I say I'm really ashamed of this but so we start to drive off and of course run straight into a traffic jam and Bob legs it up the road after us banging on the window pleading to be let in to the car and everyone just stared straight ahead ignored him it was horrible and then the traffic cleared and I think Dave was driving, if I remember right. And we just drove off and left him there.
would have liked you to have been deep frozen too And waiting still as fresh in your flesh for my return to earth But your father refused to sign the forms to freeze you Let's see, you'd be about 60 now And long dead by the time I return to earth On my time held dreams were full of you As you were when I left Still under age Your android replica is playing up again It's no joke When she comes she moans another's name That's the spirit of the age 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 Ah, the spirit of the age That's the spirit of the age Ah, the spirit of the age That is the spirit of the age
And so we have a, a perfect way to end, really, with the track Days of the Underground, which summarises the the end of a chapter uh, for Hawkwind, I, I guess. You've got a, a website, daysoftheunderground.com as well? Yeah, daysoftheunderground.com. I would encourage anybody who's interested in Hawkwind to, to go to that because it, it obviously talks about the book, but I am putting loads and loads of resources on there of lots of unseen stuff about Hawkwind, and I think, as I say, for any Hawkwind fan, it will be hopefully a, a, an interesting place to visit. And is it the paperback now, which is the... Because I think, is it the hardback and stuff has all sold out? That's right. So there was initially a special edition, um, which was a hardback and also an additional book of interviews, which I couldn't fit into the into the main book. And, and there was there was kind of posters and stuff like that as well. But that, that sold out pretty much straight away, um, earlier this year but yes the 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 paperback is 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 available finally now from from all outlets i was going to say available in all bookshops but i'm not sure kind of how relevant that is at the moment but um mm. but yeah you can certainly find it online any plans to carry on the hawkwind story or are we actually be looking at sort of different projects going forward yeah, um, I don't think that there's going to be a lot. I mean, a lot of people have asked about whether I'm going to do the 80s and 90s, but I'm just not as kind of engaged with that period in their music. I mean, I I, I really love a lot of the stuff they did, particularly in the 80s. But I, as I said, I think that the story and combination of the music they were making in the decade they were living through in the 1970s is, I think, you know, the real key point of interest for me in Hawkwind. But um, there may be possibly... Uh, some more Hawkwind related stuff happening in the future of which I cannot really say anything at the moment, but um, yeah, uh, they, I, I, <laughs> I don't think I'm done with the band yet. Well, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Joe, and uh, read what is a, a, a remarkable book of a remarkable band. Cheers then, Jason. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Back on 
the heroes we were then Made quite a stir then With our sonic attack Street fighting dancers Assassins of silence With make-believe violence On a hundred watt stack They offered us contracts We said we don't need them We'll just take our freedom We will not be bound In the day Smiling Michael, he's black motorcycle, got eaten by rust. And John the Bob dreamt that he slept on the wheel. When he woke, it was real, too late to have sussed. And Jeff was a poet who rode with a spray can on wall, saying, Hey man, I believe that we've drowned in the days of the underground. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.